All right, we're going to continue in Genesis this morning in our studies in the life of Abraham. Our text this morning is going to be in Genesis 25. It's verses 1 through 10. Open your Bible there or navigate on your electronic device, preferably an iPhone or iPad. Windows phone, I guess, if you have to, but... The topic we're going to find there, as he readies for death, Abraham reveals his will for all of his sons. The title of our message, Will I, Abraham? No Black Eyed Peas fans, I can tell. So anyway, let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for your word. I always approach it, Lord, with a a kind of a trembling, certainly an anticipation knowing that those of us who are saved have the Holy Spirit indwelling and that you're in this place by your Spirit, Lord, to minister heart to heart, that you want to speak to us. You want to talk to us, Lord, from your word, by your Spirit, and and, uh, guide and direct our hearts into your love and grace and mercy. Today should be no exception, Lord. We wait upon you, we listen to you. Do your work, Lord, here in this place, we pray in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Leona Helmsley left behind an unusual will after her death in 2007. The billionaire New York City real estate developer and hotel magnate had amassed a fortune estimated to be somewhere between $5 billion and $8 billion, according to the New York Times. She requested that the majority of this money be given to charity, including animal welfare programs, She gave other smaller amounts to various relatives. Helmsley left $12 million to her eight-year-old dog, Trouble, but no money for two of her grandchildren, directly specifying in her will that she had, and I quote, not made any provision in this will for my grandson or my granddaughter for reasons which are known to them. At the time this news was announced, there were so many death threats against the dog, it began requiring $100,000 a year for security. In 2008, a Manhattan judge reduced the $12 million figure to a more realistic $2 million, and the remainder was given to charity. The two grandchildren left out of the will were awarded a total of $6 million from their grandmother's estate. Now, as we finish out the life of Abraham and come to his death, we witness the apportioning of his worldly goods. It's more or less Abraham's will. He leaves everything to Isaac, gives gifts to the sons born to him by a second wife, and then he tells them to go far away. Abraham's will was certainly his to determine, but on the surface, it doesn't seem all that fair to us. The fairness of Abraham's will is going to be our point of spiritual contact with this story. God has a will for us. In our case, we're not talking about what he has for us after we die. His will is the path that he has us on right now. God's will for your life doesn't always seem fair, especially when you compare it to his will for other people. I'm going to say something that may sound strange. God is not fair. Now, we're fortunate, really, that God is not fair. Fairness would mean that everyone receive exactly what he or she deserves. If God were completely fair, we would all spend eternity in hell paying for our sin because that's what we deserve. We're born dead in trespasses and sins. We don't want to be treated fairly by God. 
God's will for my life and for your life should not be analyzed by its relative fairness. Instead, we should understand that God has custom designed a path for us to walk on by faith in order to experience a spiritual fullness. I'll organize my thoughts around those two points. Number one, God's will is a matter for faith, not fairness to apprehend. And number two, God's will is a matter of fullness, not fairness to attain. In the first six verses, we're going to see the walk of faith. Now, I have to think that if you asked Abraham at the end of his life, if God was fair, he'd look at you like you were speaking a foreign language. God had called him to turn to him from idols and walk as a stranger and a pilgrim by faith in promises, most of which he would never receive in this life. It wasn't a matter of fairness or unfairness, but of following God by faith, knowing that God had a wonderful spiritual path for Abraham to discover. I guess what I'm saying is if anybody could accuse God of being unfair, it would be Abraham. But having read this far into his life, you know that that's a foreign concept. And so as we begin chapter 25, Abraham has about 37 years left to live. Sarah has just died. Enter Keturah, verse 1. Abraham again took a wife and her name was Keturah. Exactly when Abraham married Keturah is unknown, but the verb took and the adjective another suggests that it was after Sarah's death. There's also a discussion over her legal status because in 1 Chronicles chapter 1, verse 32, she's referred to as Abraham's concubine, not as his wife. And in a little while, it's going to talk about concubines as well. One possible solution is that she had been his concubine and later became his wife. Another is that these words were sometimes used interchangeably during the time of the patriarchs before the giving of the law to Moses really spelled out all these various relationships. We understand all this to mean that Abraham married again after Sarah died and the woman was Keturah. Verse two, and she bore him Zimron, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shuah. Jokshan begot Sheba and Dedan. And the sons of Dedan were Ashurim, Lechushim, and Lumim. And the sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Ahanuk, Abadai, and Eldah. These were the children of Keturah. If you're pregnant, if you know anyone that's pregnant, having boys, uh, rich vein of uh, information here for you as far as names. Uh, I can bet you right now, if you name one of your kids Zimron, you'll be the only one this year. And, uh, you know, some people, they like to come up with these crazy Bible names, you know, and, and so here you go. Now, one objection people raise to these sons being born to Abraham in his old age is that the Bible indicates Abraham was as good as dead with regard to fathering his son back in the time of Isaac. So how are we to explain this? Well, Dr. J. Vernon McGee said this. He goes, when God does something, he really does it. This is the reason I believe that anything God does bears his signature. Right here we see that this man Abraham was not only able to bring Isaac into the world, but he now brings in this great family of children. And so... Dr. McGee is suggesting that, yes, Abraham was dead as to fathering children. Sarah's womb was dead. But at the time he invigorated Abraham and Sarah to have Isaac, that continued into uh, Abraham's old age because when God does something, he does it. Uh, and, and 
I like what he says about it bearing God's signature. You know, a lot of times people want to give God credit for things, and that's great, but some of the things they give God credit for are really pretty lame. Uh, they're halfway things. They're things that aren't really completed and, and they still need a lot of your money to complete, you know, that kind of a thing. And so, you know, when God does something, it's first class all the way. And so when people say, hey, God is doing this, look for his kind of character and signature on it uh, because it will, uh, it will be something of quality. Now, the names we would be most interested, or the name we'd be most interested here in this list in passing is Midian, because we're going to find later that Moses is going to go down to the land of Midian, and that's where he will find his wife. And so, remember that Genesis is the book of origins and beginnings, and uh, it's also uh, giving us some clues along the way as to uh, how these things all come together. Now, born from Abraham were Ishmael, Isaac, and these six other boys, eight sons to split the inheritance of their father. And so verse five says, and Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. Abraham gave gifts to the sons of the concubines, which Abraham had. While he was still living, he sent them eastward away from Isaac, his son, to the country of the east. Now you and I read this and we think, of course, Abraham gave everything to Isaac. He was the son of the promise. Theologically, that's true, that's great, but on a family level, if you put yourself in that home, it's not very fair to these boys, and apparently they didn't have good lawyers. (laughs) Because Abraham gave them some gifts and sent them away, and that's the last you hear about contesting the will. Now, your life is probably not going to be fair. Uh, you, you can say amen if that rings true. But I, I mean, there's probably going to be at least one episode in your life that you think is not fair. But as we've seen, when it comes to a relationship with God, we don't want to think even in terms of fairness because we're looking for things like grace and mercy and forgiveness and acceptance, none of which we deserve. And so fairness shouldn't enter into our thinking. God's will for our lives as it unfolds day by day is to be apprehended by faith. We can trust his will for our lives to be good and perfect in light of his promise to change us from glory to glory into the image of Jesus Christ. If you want to know what's going on in a big general way, once you become a Christian, God is shaping you and molding you and fashioning you to be more like Jesus Christ. Now, his work in each of our lives, it has to be a little different. We are different, and God knows us intimately. He knows what makes us tick. We are unique. He cannot do everything exactly the same way in all of our lives, and that sometimes leads us to conclude that he is being unfair. Those of you who've raised children or are raising children, you know that I think like the first word out of their mouth is always daddy and then mom gets upset and she makes them say mom. And then the third word I think out of most children's mouths is unfair (laughs) because everything is always unfair. Now when our kids used to accuse us of being fair, I didn't just say life's not fair because that seemed cruel. Uh, And so I would say, would you like things to be fair? And then they would know that I was up to something. They never really answered. Because whenever I asked them a question, it was to trap them. It was entrapment. (laughs) And I would say, would you like life to be fair? And then I would explain what life would be like for them if everything was fair. And uh, it wasn't a pretty thing. 
And so, you know, because life isn't for you. You really, you know, outside maybe in, at the job site or if you're a union guy or whatever, there's a place for fairness. But when you're talking about your relationship with God, you shouldn't even think in terms of fairness or unfairness. You should just think in terms of faith, knowing that God has a unique plan for your life. Some people compare God's plan for your life to a potter working with clay. Uh, we took a look at that a little bit last Wednesday night, but it's a good one. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I've never worked with pottery. Uh, I've never worked in that way, but I know there's the wheel and there's the clay itself. And then there's the, you know, the, uh, there's something that you do to fire it. I've, what's that called? Don't tell me. I'll, it'll come to me. A kiln. There you go. I was going to say kilt, but that would have gotten, would have been off. But uh, anyway, uh, so, you know, but, but depending on where you're at in the process and what you're making, the wheel's going to go faster or slower and your hands are going to be more or less pressure and, and shaping and all, and then the firing and all that. And so, you know, if you're making an ashtray, that's one thing. I always feel like God's making me an ashtray, don't you? There's thumbs in the corners all the time. You're just a flat, I'm flattened out, a little bit of a bowl with some thumb work. And then I look over at you and I think, man, this is something beautiful. This is like a vase that's going all these different directions and stuff like that. And I'm just some ashtray. (laughs) But you know, God knows that maybe an ashtray is the best use of my life. You know, I don't know. So you understand what I'm saying. I mean, it's, it's up to the potter, but not, in, I mean, you know, God is obviously making us all vessels of honor because he loves us. We just don't know where it's at. Uh, Edith Schaefer, uh, Francis Schaefer's wife, had a famous illustration as well for those of you ladies who do cross-stitch or stuff like that. She said, you, you and I, we see the back of the project where all the loose threads are and all the, it's crazy. If you look at the back of needlepoint and stuff like that, it, you can't even tell what it is. But if you turn it around, it's exactly what the artist intended. And, and, and you and I just don't know what God is doing totally with our lives. And so we have to trust that by faith, what's happening in our lives is really his will for our lives. And we submit to it. And it doesn't matter what he's doing in someone else's life because that person is at another place in their walk with the Lord. They're an entirely different person. And, and I don't want their plan for my life. I want God's plan for my life. Uh, But along the way, we struggle with that and we think that it's unfair. In the book of Acts, James and Peter were both imprisoned for preaching about Jesus. James was quickly beheaded. Peter, before he could be executed, was miraculously released from prison by an angel. Was that fair? Now, normally we think it's unfair to James, but I think it's unfair to Peter. Because James, man, he got to go to heaven. Paul the Apostle would later say, he goes, you know, I, I kind of would like to go to heaven. Shipwrecks, beatings, stonings. I've been in prison more times than I care to count. I've been naked, you know, on my missionary journeys. I've been robbed. Uh, but if the Lord wants me to hang around, I'll hang around and preach the gospel. And so I'm not sure we should think it was unfair to James. It was kind of unfair to Peter. But nevertheless, God had a different plan. He brought glory to himself through James being beheaded. He brought glory to himself through Peter being released. God's will for James was different than it was for Peter. God's will for Peter was different than it was for John. After Jesus rose from the dead, as he and Peter were sharing some breakfast on the beach, Jesus told Peter the manner of his death. He would be crucified when he was old. Peter then asked Jesus how John was going to die. The Lord answered, If I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Now, John goes on to say that this created a rumor that he was never going to die. 
He said, but the Lord didn't say that. He just, the point was, don't worry about what I'm doing with John. This is what I'm gonna do with you. What does it matter? You follow me. I like that. The Lord has his unique plan for each of us. And this all sounds really good right now, you know, probably in our message. Wow, that's right on. But when I sit in front of people and they have complaints and, and I look at them and I say, what's that to you? Follow the Lord. Well, you're mean. You're a mean person. I said, no, it's, it's actually Jesus said that. But, you know, because, I, I, I mean, I don't know how many times I've had to tell people, I, it, doesn't, it doesn't bring me any joy to look at people and say, you know, life's not fair. There's, usually there's some complaint, this is happening or that's, and I say, hey, that's your lot in life. Oh, man, you know, just, I'm sorry. But God is in control of that. Why don't you just walk by faith and see where he's leading you? When I think my life is unfair, I'm not trusting God to know what is best for me. Thinking my life's not fair can rush me into or out of a marriage. Thinking my life's not fair can rush me into or out of a job or a church or almost anything. Walking by faith, however, it improves all of those circumstances because I'm in a place spiritually where I can receive God's grace and mercy and forgiveness and acceptance. And so if I'm not in sin, if I'm not walking in sin and things are happening in my life, I can rest in the master potter and the master craftsman. I can believe that it's a fiery trial sent to make me more like gold, to purify me and to see the image of Jesus Christ in my life. One of the great animated villains has to be Scar from The Lion King. He will ultimately be responsible for the death of his brother, King Mufasa, as well as Simba's flight into the wilderness and away from his calling. The very first line of dialogue from Scar in The Lion King establishes his worldview. He catches a mouse in one of his enormous paws and he says to it, life's not fair, is it? You see, I, will, I shall never be king and you, you shall never see the light of another day. And it's really, yeah, I know it's a cartoon, but it's really profound. His entire life is dedicated to the fact that it's not fair that he thinks he should have been king and not Mufasa. And he lives his life in the shadow of that thought and it leads him to ruin. It almost leads everyone to ruin. And so I, we need to really guard against this. Life is not fair, but we shouldn't even think in terms of relative fairness. We should only think in terms of the walk of faith. And walking by faith we apprehend the life God has for us. And that brings us to the fact that we want to have a fullness in life, not a fairness. It ought to be our goal in life to attain to a spiritual fullness. Job 42, verse 17, it says of Job, he died old and full of days. Second Chronicles chapter 24 talks about Jehoiada. He was old and full of days. And there's a lot of guys in the Bible, they were old and they were full of days. I see a distinction. Old age by itself, that's nothing to get excited about. It is something excited if when you get there, you are also experiencing a fullness of days. That is, you are satisfied spiritually in your life. And so verse seven, this is the sum of the years of Abraham's life, which he lived 175 years. A century of walking with God was behind him. Now, Abraham had experienced much, and as we've seen, not all of it was in the category of good. He'd made a few mistakes. 
He had some serious misunderstandings. He'd experienced danger and disappointment and most recently the death of his precious wife. But the most fantastic thing about that 100 years was that there was a fullness to it because God called Abraham his friend. Isaiah 41, verse 8, 2 Chronicles 20, verse 7, James chapter 2, verse 23, all describe Abraham as the friend of God. Charles Spurgeon had this to say, I think I hear you say, yes, it was indeed a high degree to which Abraham reached, so high that we cannot attain to it. It would be idle for us to dream of being accounted friends of God. My brothers and sisters, I entreat you, think not so. We also may be called the friends of God. Let me read to you the words of our blessed Lord in the 15th chapter of John. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. Henceforth, I call you not servants, for the servant knows not what his Lord does. But I have called you friends for all things that I have heard of my father I have made known unto you. It is then within reach. Jesus himself invites us to live and act and be his friends. Do you think of yourself as the friend of God this morning? If so, are you a good friend? Spurgeon went on to say this. There must be a continual communion. The friend of God must not spend a day without God. He must undertake no work apart from God. You cannot be a friend of God if your communion with him is occasional, fitful, distant, or broken. If you only think of him on Sundays, for example, you're not his friend. Friends love each other's society. The friend of God must abide in God, walk with God, and then he shall dwell at ease. Now, you read that, it's not meant to be a rebuke. I mean, it's easy to rebuke Christians. We're we're sensitive even those of us who think we're not sensitive, it's easy to say you don't pray enough, you, you're not really obedient enough, you're not a very good Christian. We could all own up to that. That's not what Spurgeon means. He's reminding us that Jesus said, you're my servants, but you're also my friends because we, we have a tendency to always drop back. Our fallback position is that God is somehow distant from us, that that we haven't done enough or that there's some problem. And so Spurgeon is just saying, hey, Jesus said he wants to be your friend. He wants you to close any distance that might have developed between you and him. And so if you read this and you think, yeah, I've just been blowing it, then get back into walking with the Lord as your friend. Today there's a trend within the church among Christians to create rather than close distance with God. I've mentioned this to you several times over the last six or eight months. I think it's a dangerous trend. You'll hear Christians talk about returning to a more formal worship service. They are adopting what they are told are the ancient practices of the church. Now, if you've never experienced that kind of thing, it can seem somewhat moving. It is moving, but it's moving you further from the Lord. He wants to be your friend. He wants to draw close to you. All you need to do is be a good friend to him. And so I understand, you know, there's a time for ceremony. Uh, There's a time for uh, formal things. Uh, But in general, we we don't, I think sometimes if you've grown up in the evangelical Protestant church that is generally more casual, I know ours is super casual, but even the the average evangelical church is pretty casual. And then you experience something a little bit more liturgical or ceremonial or formal. You think, wow, that's really beautiful. It's like when you go to a wedding, 
You know, it, it is. It should be beautiful. It should be wonderful. And there, there can be a place for that. But you have to be careful that you don't start saying, and it's more spiritual. It's beautiful and it's wonderful. And it must be more spiritual because the people seem more reverent. They wear robes and they do this and they do that. And after all, this is what the ancient church did, which most of the time is not what the or first century church did. It's what the third and fourth century church did, which wasn't really too cool. But, uh, you know, the early Christians, they just met and they didn't have any place to meet even. They met in the, tam- in the temple. They say, hey, we're going to just hang out in the temple, public place, from house to house. They didn't have all these formal things. When they, you know, when Paul taught at a house church, he didn't come in swinging a censer, speaking Latin. That was more Indian, but anyway. My Latin's a little rusty there. But you know what I mean? And I, I think that's fine. I don't mind that. I could get into that. But people assume that is more spiritual. And what it is is more distant. You're creating distance from God because you don't do that with your best friend. When you and your friends get together, you don't swing incense and talk in Latin and, and get all formal. You don't wear robes. Uh, you, you know, you hang out. You're still respectful. You're loving. You know, you want to be together. And so just bear that in mind. Jesus said, I want you to be my friend. He made breakfast for, for Peter on the beach. And he said, hey, what's going on? Uh, let me tell you. Want to hear something cool? Yeah. I'm going to tell you how you're going to die. <laughs> oh, okay. So I'm going to get old and be crucified? All right. What about John? Yeah. Forget about John. <laughs> I mean, really, that's the conversation. Do you understand? That's what was going on. You know, the Lord was like, one day. You know, he, he just say, yeah. He just say, hey, John, don't tell John, but. I might want him to live until I get back. You know, I mean, it's crazy stuff when you think about it. Now, verse eight. Then Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man full of years and was gathered to his people. Getting to that good old age, that's not something we have much say so about. None of us knows the number of our days, only that our days are numbered. But whether we die old or young, we can be full of years if we are looking to the Lord to satisfy us, if we're interested in being full of the Lord and, and just knowing his will for our lives. Verse nine, his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the field of Ephron, the sons of Zohar, a son really of Zohar the Hittite. Abraham lived before the law was given to Moses, but we can suppose that burial customs didn't change all that much in that region of the world. We know from the law that burial was to take place within 24 hours of death. That's in Deuteronomy 21, which would be given to Moses later. There was no time to send out notices of a funeral and no waiting for folks to arrive. So when Abraham died, Isaac couldn't text Ishmael and say, hey, when do you think you can make it? I'm planning the funeral. No, this all happened immediately. And so this tells us that Ishmael was there. He was already on scene. His presence at the death and burial of Abraham indicates, to me at least, that Ishmael had some sense of submission to God's will for he and Isaac. He didn't hate his dad for having been sent away as a teenager. His dad loved him and he loved Abraham. And uh, so remember the last time we saw Ishmael, Sarah was upset because Ishmael was making fun of Isaac and she said, 
this house isn't big enough for all of us, and uh, I need you to send away Hagar and Ishmael. And it pained Abraham, but God said, listen to your wife. I'll take care of Ishmael. And he sent him away. Now we see him here. You know, I don't want to read too much into it, but, you know, I'm not saying Isaac and Ishmael were best buddies, uh, but they hung out together. He came to his father's funeral. It says a lot when you come to a person's funeral. Some of you, I don't want to, you know, bring up uh, bad memories, family times and stuff, but you know funerals can be rough. There are people who, hey, I'm not coming to your funeral. I hated you in life. I hate you in death. You know, that kind of a thing. And so he came. And so it says he at least understood that, that God was doing something. I'm not saying Ishmael was saved, but he at least understood that his dad had made certain decisions and he still was willing to honor him. The, uh, verse 10, the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth, Abraham was buried there and Sarah his wife. More than anything else, I think this verse puts fullness versus fairness into a real proper perspective. You remember God had promised to give Abraham tons of land. I'm just, you know, the borders are there for us in the Abrahamic covenant. It's it's, it's a huge section of land in Israel. But in the end, Abraham had to buy a small field with a burial cave, and that was the only real estate holding he had. So if you want to talk in terms of fairness, God comes to you, you're in Ur of the Chaldees, you're a somewhat successful pagan idolater, and he says, hey, guess what? I'm calling you to follow me. I just want you to follow me day by day, foot by foot, faith by faith. I'm going to give you descendants like the sand of the sea, like the stars in the sky. I'm going to give you tons of land. By the way, you'll never have any of that in this life. You're going to have to believe me that that's coming later. Along the way, you're going to have to almost sacrifice the one son that I do give you. But hey, isn't this going to be great? And Abraham would say, yeah, it was. It was a fullness because I understood things about God that could only be known that way. We looked at the the near sacrifice of Isaac, remember? And, And it brought to Abraham's heart the understanding that there would be a resurrection from the dead. We take that for granted, I think. I I think it's fair to say that because we're looking back at history and we see Jesus rising from the dead and we have this full teaching about resurrection. But these Old Testament guys, they didn't know much about the resurrection from the dead. But Abraham was brought to an understanding that if I have to kill Isaac, then God will raise him from the dead because in Isaac all these promises are realized. But looking back, you know, from a human perspective, God didn't really fulfill any of his major promises to Abraham. They were all in the future. So did Abraham live a defeated life? Did he wish he had remained in Ur, dying a successful businessman rather than a nomad? Did he look back over his life and wish he had done it his way rather than going God's way? Do you even imagine for a minute that when he gathered Isaac and Ishmael to him, he said, you know, my my life, I hate my life. I, I had it all going for me in Ur, I don't know, now I've got nothing. You're going to throw me in a cave next to your mother's bones. No, he, he died full of faith and excitement and, and, and fullness because he was looking for a city whose builder and maker is God, eternal in the heavens. He was full because he was fully satisfied in the promises of God, knowing who God was. And so life is not fair, but it is a matter of faith and of fullness. Take with you these precious words of Jesus. What is that to you? You follow me. Amen.